Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I was not a Hello, everybody. How you doing? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. I appreciate that. And I hope you're doing okay wherever you happen to be. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you are listening. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Today on the program, my guest is Samantha Irby author of a new essay collection entitled Quietly Hostile. My number one like person or entity to be angry with is like the universe, right? It's like I did not get a fair fucking shake. Who do I talk to? Who do I... And, and because there's no one, it's like, well, I better figure out how to get over it and like, extract what I can from it, which is hopefully a joke, hopefully 2000 words worth of a joke. All right. That was Samantha Irby. Her new book is called Quietly Hostile, available from Vintage. It is another super funny, ultra candid, no holds barred collection of essays that deals with, among other things, the perils of Hollywood screenwriting, red carpet premieres, Diarrhea, Sex in the City, QVC, Insane Rescue Dogs, Dave Matthews, Family Tragedy and Dysfunction, Death, Absurd Human Behavior in the Face of Death, and much more. I had so much fun talking with Samantha Irby. I can't wait for you guys to hear this conversation. It's coming up in just a couple of minutes. The Other People podcast is offered freely. The entire archive of this podcast, more than 830 episodes and counting, is available to listeners free of charge. There's no paywall by design, but I am counting on regular listeners, people who love this show, people who get something from it, people who love books and book culture. 
I'm counting on you guys to support this show for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash other PPL pod. Help me keep making this show. It's a sliding scale. So whatever you can afford, $1, 3 5 10 20 And as you move up the scale, you can get merchandise over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you want to get another people t-shirt, you can do that over at the show's official website, otherppl.com. Just scroll down, look for the t-shirt. You can't miss it. They're good t-shirts. They're soft. If you want to get my free once a week email newsletter, you can sign up at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. I would appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast wherever you are listening to this podcast. It helps new listeners find this podcast. You can watch this podcast. Watch my conversation with Samantha Irby on the Other People YouTube channel. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Email me if you have feedback, if you have thoughts to share. The address is letters at otherppl.com. And finally, if you would like to read my latest novel, it's out there. It just celebrated its first birthday. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so I will read it to you. How does that sound? It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So my guest, once again, is Samantha Irby. Her new essay collection is called Quietly Hostile, available now from Vintage. It is one of the most anticipated books of the year. Samantha Irby has established herself as one of the finest comic writers in American letters. Her other essay collections include Meaty, Wow No Thank You, and We Are Never Meeting in Real Life. In addition to writing books, Samantha Irby is a prolific blogger. She has a blog called Bitches Gotta Eat, which is widely beloved, and she also writes for television. She has written for the show entitled And Just Like That, the HBO reboot of Sex and the City, and she has written for the show entitled Shrill. I believe that she is working, or she was working until this writer strike started, on an animated show for Netflix called Tuca and Birdie. So stay tuned for that. She is a busy woman, multi-talented, and I am so happy to have Samantha Irby here on the Other People podcast. I can't believe this didn't happen sooner, but uh, I'm happy that it's happening now. So the new book, once again, is called Quietly Hostile, out this week from Vintage. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is my conversation with the one and only Samantha Irby. When I was a kid, it was very, I think my sense of humor was developed from a place or at least the way I uh, express it was was always like, I'm going to beat you to the joke, right? Like, I know what's wrong with me or I know what you think is wrong with me. I know that my shoes are from Payless or that my clothes are from the Goodwill. I know that I'm fat. I know my teeth are fucked up. Can I curse on here? Is that okay? Oh, yeah. Okay. Of course. Please. Um, And so it was like, as a kid rather than like try to recover you know once like an insult was deployed it's like well if I beat them to the punch then it kind of like takes their knees out from under them and I so I think that is what started 
that's what kind of like made me decide to be, I, I don't know if you can decide to be a funny person, but I think that's when I decided to like take things less seriously and always just like try to be a jester because it sort of like kept the other pressure off me, right? Like if I'm funny, I don't have to talk to anyone about being poor. Or if I'm funny, I don't have to tell anyone like why I don't live with my parents. Or, you know, it just was like, it's an easy way to deflect that maybe I take advantage of too often. <laughs> like I, I love to make a joke and not like answer a question or solve a problem. And I think that can be frustrating for other people. But in terms of like both getting through life and the work, it has, it's my like greatest asset, I think, is just knowing how to take a fucking joke and how, and how to make one, but how to take one, I think is the, is the bigger hurdle. And I got good at that early. <laughs> well, I think it's a high, I mean, I understand how it could become problematic, like psychologically and emotionally, if you overdo it, or if you use it in lieu of actually dealing with stuff. But yeah. it is, uh, especially considering the pretty chaotic situation and difficult situation in which you grew up. Yeah. It's, I find it like heartbreaking, heartwarming, and it's, it's a high alchemy. It's taking really difficult stuff and turning it into something quite lovely, like being able to make yourself laugh and make other people laugh. It's also shrewd for a young person to understand and to have that kind of self-awareness and to learn how to, like you said, take the knees out from people who might otherwise cause you trouble and to do it with comedy. Like you got to have your wits about you to do that. Yeah. I, I mean, it is, I think I always am just, even now, right. I'm, I'm so like self-conscious and I'm so like, I want to be liked and I want people like, if you hear my name to be like, Oh, I like that person. And I think like, again, it wasn't like, I'm going to make myself this way. It just was like, this is what works to keep me, to keep that feeling of like, you are liked and people want to be around you. Like it was just like, Okay, I'm never, because like when you're a kid or a truly any time in life, you know, things like not having money and not having access, you can't just like wish those away, right? Like, I think I was very lucky that we lived in a really good suburb and I got to go to a really good high school. I mean, I didn't go much further than high school, so it truly like shaped who I am, but like, you can't, you can't fix, there was no way as a kid to like fix my family's poverty. So you feel like you could either feel like hopeless, which I did a lot. You'd be like, oh, my station in life is not changing. Every day people are going to relentlessly remind me of what I don't have. Or you just like try to you know, like I can be honest with myself, like, yeah, this doesn't fit. And this did only cost 50 cents at the Salvation Army. But what I can do is rather than like, sort of dwell on what I can't fix, just kind of like, build a bit, 
<laughs> around the thing to like at least make make me make me appear to like be okay with it in front of other people. And then like the longer you do that, the easier it becomes and the the fooling other people into thinking you're okay is more seamless. And then it's like you know, you hit a point where you're like, okay, I'm 30. I can't I can't not be like this now, right? Because I've spent my whole life being like this and I guess I mean, a mental health professional would probably say that it is unhealthy to kind of like decide how you're going to view life or how you're going to feel about things rather than just feeling them. But I think it was truly like the only way for me to get through and like hope that there was something better like on the other side of it. Because when you're a kid, I mean, truly, you're just like limited by what you have and what you see. And when that's not much, and when the people you're looking at don't have much, <laughs> it's like, it's like, oh, I, there's no way for me to think of my future without like getting sad. So I'm just going to like look at my circumstances and try to laugh at them so that at least I don't feel bad. Or I don't feel as bad as my life is. Which sounds bleak. I'm trying to say this in the most hopeful I survived kind of way. <laughs> but no, it was definitely like becoming like honing this sense of humor was like it saved me. And I truly did not ever think it would be anything other than just like my armor for life. Like there was no part of me that was like oh, this, this one day will be very beneficial to me. I could like make a career out of this. Never. It truly was just about like, everyone I have a crush on does not have a crush on me back. I could cry about that or I could like make a joke. And it was always like, let's just make the joke. So for people listening, you were raised in Evanston, Illinois. Is that right? Yep. I was born and raised in Evanston, born at Evanston Hospital. It's where Northwestern is. It's a suburb just north of Chicago on Lake Michigan. And like, you know, people are always like, oh, you're not from Chicago, but there is a street in Evanston where one side of the street is Evanston and the other side is Chicago. <laughs> so it's not like I'm from some way out suburb. Like come on. My mom was a nurse at Evanston Hospital, as was her mom, but they were originally from DC. And I honestly, I don't know why my mom picked and stayed in Evanston, but I'm really grateful that she did because like I said, we didn't have anything but I learned to swim. <laughs> you know, I had after school programs where I learned things and I read and I was exposed to a lot, like thanks to the school system and like the generosity of my peers' parents. Sure, sure. And then your dad was kind of out of the picture. You write about this in the book. I think some of the most moving parts of Quietly Hostile get into this like family history. Yeah, my dad was from 
well, he was born in Tunica, Mississippi. Okay, dig this. This will tell you everything you need to know about his circumstances growing up. At third, uh, 16, he lied to go fight in Korea <laughs> because he thought that would be better than his life at home. He was like, he lied to an army recruiter and was like, yeah, I'm 18. And you know, this is, I don't know what kind of IDs they had back then. My dad was born in 1936, right? Like, I'm I'm sure he just like wrote I'm 18 on a piece of paper and they're like, great, go die in Korea. Um, (laughs) But he like, he had a, you know, just a super impoverished upbringing. He went to Korea. I mean, I think, PTSD from the war and rampant alcoholism just like destroyed his brain. Like he was, you know, there were times when he was great, but then most of the time he was just like a brute. He was terrible. And they, like they, my parents had lives like full. My mom had had three daughters. My dad had his own two kids in Memphis by the time they met and kind of like pushed their whole, (laughs) their two insane situations together. And then like 10 years after that, they, they had me. So it's, uh, you have, you have, you have siblings who are significantly older than you. Yes. Yeah. I'm 43 and my sisters are 63, 60 and 58. Like we are, I can't even say like we're different generations. I mean, truly it is like having three grandmothers, (laughs) not because of age, because like, you know, not because of age, but because like just being raised in the sixties and seventies versus being raised in the eighties and nineties. It's like, we're, we are totally, totally different, but yeah, I, my dad, was my dad met my mom when the youngest of my sisters was four. So he, he, and and then he spent like 11 years, 10 or 11 years with them before I was born. And so he was like their, he was like their stepdad. They never let him all the way in. Like they never called him dad. What did they call him? (laughs) I mean, this, this is truly funny. Don't, don't feel bad. Anyone. But my sisters, when they were little, were all very skinny. And my dad, like, jokingly would be like, hey, skinny. And he wasn't a big dude, but they, like, teasingly called him fat. They'd be like, hey, fat. And it just stuck. So, like, my entire life, they would, like, come in and be like, is fat home? It's like, yes. (laughs) Why do you call him that? But, yeah, that was, that was their their nicknames for each other and you know what as a step parent now now I just am like it's the same deal like these kids don't call me mom they they usually call me like babe (laughs) because that's what I started calling them and it's like and I understand like when I was a kid I was like you guys should call him dad he he drives you to school you know or whatever and like now I I get it. Like it's not really your dad, but he's around all the time. 
You don't want to call him by his first name. So you give him a nickname. Like, I, I get it now. Then I thought they were being mean to my daddy. But <laughs> now I get it. I get it. And so he was around. He was around until he hung in there till I was four. And then that's when the, I mean, he was in and out of Hazelden for years, like trying to dry out and it never, it never really took, I mean, I have such a like, uh, I I don't want to sound like condescending and be like, oh my God, I have such a um, compassion for addicts, but truly it's hard. It is hard. These are chemicals. Your brain is full of chemicals. None of us understand our own chemicals. So when I was four, he just, he could not put off, put down the bottle and he was abusive. And my mom was like, listen, you're not gonna like whatever you've done. Okay. But you're not gonna like hit me or the baby. And then we, we left. And then he faltered he was homeless and then he went to memphis for a while and then he came back to evanston but he yeah he never could get out of the grip of alcohol it was really i mean it's really sad totally it's all it's addiction is is a terrible illness yeah and you lost not to be like too morose but i the reason i ask and i want us to cover this is because it's so key i think to your formation as a funny person oh like, sure yeah no nothing is off limits let's get into okay. it. okay but you lost both of your parents by the time you were 18 i think they passed away within months of one another yes right? my so i did go to college for one year one or two semesters it wasn't a full year to that end i will say people who managed to get through college on their own with no help are truly the real heroes. I couldn't do it. It's like impossible to go to like a college with a dorm and have no place to go during spring break. You know what I mean? It was like, uh, after that, I was like, oh, I got to get a job and just have a life because (laughs) I can't, I cannot do this on my own. Oh my God. What was I even talking about? Oh, them dying. My one... My the second semester of my one year, my dad came he came from he went from Memphis to Evanston because he was having heart problems. And my entire childhood, my dad had had this incredible doctor, this like devout, kosher no electricity on Sundays, Jewish doctor, Dr. Ira Weiss. He like, my dad saw that dude so much. I think he had like four heart attacks over the course of his life that he was truly like part of our family, you know, like he would be at our house. I did not realize that it's not normal to have a cardiologist just like drop by until later. Um, but so my dad was having some heart problems in Memphis, went to Evanston where Dr. Weiss was waiting uh, with open arms and he was put into, I think he had had a heart attack and he was put into 
a nursing home that was right up the street from the nursing home my mom was in. And one day in February, he tells them that he's going to take a walk. And he walked to my mom's nursing home, stole some money from her roommate, and then left and just never went back to his original nursing home. So I get this call. Now, remember, he's only my biological dad. And my sisters, I mean, I don't know. It's no, it's, <laughs> I don't want to make anyone like think they're villains, but this was kind of villainous. We've worked this out, but you know, my sisters were basically like, uh, you know, not our dad, not going to deal with it. I was like, yeah, I hear you. But I, at the time, I hadn't turned 18 yet. I was 17. And I'm like in DeKalb, Illinois, in a dorm room with like my roommate, Kara, who was incredible. But she had like two parents, loving home, lots of money. She could not relate to this situation at all. She was like, your dad walked out of a nursing home and went where? And I'm like, yeah. That's the question. We don't know. And my sisters were not being helpful. And I talked to a detective at the police department. And he's like, you know, we're going to look for him. Blah, blah, blah. I turn 18 on February 13th. And then I get a call February 14th that my dad was found. He had walked at five miles over the course of a couple of days. He died of all things from hypothermia. All his problems, hypothermia is what took him out. And I guess when you are dying of hypothermia, you feel like you're burning up. So he took off all of his clothes, folded them, which was very my father, folded them and laid down on top of them and died in someone's backyard. And like, at the time it just is so who like thinks that that's ever gonna happen right like plus I literally was like 18 years and one day I also like I didn't have money to get from DeKalb to Chicago because I hadn't anticipated needing to go so like one of my friends moms came and got me and drove me home and I'm trying to like plan a funeral at 18, but I don't know anything. I don't know where you get money for a funeral. Like I truly didn't know anything. And everyone else was like, well, it's on you, you know, figure it out, figure out if you're gonna uh, cremate him or if he's getting buried, but there's no money for a burial plot. You know, it was just like all this stuff that I'd never had to think about and didn't have anyone to turn to. And where, where was your mom? Your mom was, your mom mom was, was in a nursing in, home. In her nursing home at that time. And like, she had multiple sclerosis, but she had started to get some dementia. Uh, and so like, she wasn't any help. I don't even know if she understood that he was dead, honestly, like when we told her. But... I will say that somehow it all came together. <laughs> I, can't, I can't tell you how, but it was like, 
it was every wino in Evanston showed up for my dad's funeral. It smelled like a distillery in there. I was like, do y'all have to be drunk here? No one was with, you know, <laughs> you know you're like, oh, what should I, should I wear black to this funeral? Should I dress up? Should I just do a sweater? These dudes did not think about that at all. They were all in like tattered rags, all crying, all like spilling pints of vodka everywhere. But the best part of my dad's funeral was Dr. Weiss came and he sang the Lord's Prayer in Hebrew. And like everyone was like quiet and like reverent. And it was like so, so beautiful. But I don't, honestly, I don't even know like how we, we did it. Like the funeral home director and I, I don't know how we pulled it together. So that was like my crash course in parental death. And then I went back to school because I also am like, I don't, as much as I like indulge myself in my writing, because I do feel like I indulge a lot of stuff that an ordinary writer would not do. I, I don't in life like sort of indulge in grief or like or say things like you know I gotta have three days off for my mental health even if I need them I've never been that type so I I the next day I went back to school and went to class and so I came home at the end of the semester I went to visit my mom and I walked into her she was in hospice at this point So like after my dad died, they moved her into hospice and I walked into her room at the hospice place and she immediately started like, uh, like gasping for air kind of like, just like breathing really loud. And the hospice nurse was like, yeah, I think she was just hanging on until she could see you one more time. And within like 20 minutes, they had her on an, in an ambulance on her way to the hospital. And then my sisters and I went to the hospital and we uh, got to watch her die, which is weird. It's like, it, it's not upsetting as it wasn't for me as upsetting as it was just like strange, you know, like it's, like, you know, we're like looking at the morphine dripping into her and I'm like, I can't believe that we're here. You know, it was like, it was surreal, but also like funny, but like not really funny, but like funny, right? Like, it well, like was, listen, it I, so I want to interrupt you. I want to interrupt you because I feel like this is where you are so gifted. You are writing about this in your new collection and it's heartbreaking and sad but also you are able to locate these absurdities <laughs> like for, for example the fact that the doctors give each of your sisters and you like 30 seconds to I, say goodbye I know I know I know it's so Brad you know what it's like I if I could if if my life was good 
I could be a person who like romanticize things, right? Who's like, we are gonna, we're going to gather around. We're going to read poems to mom. We are going to apologize for the thing she didn't know we broke, that we lied about. You know what I mean? Like if I had a nice life, that's the kind of thing I would imagine. But I have had so many of these situations where it's just like, like one part of it is just like fucked up. And then it's like, okay, no, this is funny now. Like they would not let us all go into the room together. They would not give us a hallmark goodbye to this woman who gave us life. They were like TikTok. You little bitches, one in, one out, say what you got to say before she loses consciousness. (laughs) And it's like, so like, that's, that's nuts and funny. And then on top of it, you add like us, we all, you know, have seething resentments for each other. And like the negotiation of like, who was going to go with, like, I'd argue that we should have done it in birth order because then I would be last and my face would be the last one that she saw didn't work out like that. And it's just like, I I think because truly like every event just has that one kernel of like, did that happen? Or did you, did you hear him say that? That... that it's, it makes it, it's almost like it's set up for me to just pluck the weird thing out and build a funny story about around that, like, terrible thing. Well, and the line, you know, where you're kind of s- sitting there at your mother's deathbed and you say something to the effect of, I love you so much, I'll miss you forever. And she sort of, what, takes the mask off? Oh, that brother was like... so fucking dramatic. Like, she reaches up with her skeleton claw <laughs> which i mean she was still having someone like come in and paint her nails i was like girl you are too much so she reaches up with this skinny claw with like these red daggers at the end of it and like drags the oxygen thing away from her face and is like are you sure because my oldest sister and I had been fighting over her almost corpse. (laughs) And I was like, did you just ask, am I sure if I love you? Well, honestly, bitch, maybe not. Like, enjoy (laughs) hell. You know what I mean? Like, what kind of shit is that to do? I went into the hall and I said to my sister, Jane, I was like, mom just fucked me up for the rest of my life. That's the last thing I'm going to ever hear that fucking bitch say. <laughs> and I was like, really being like loving and grown up. I was not making any jokes. I wasn't saying anything like dumb. I wasn't trying to get her to, you know, cause like typical me, I'd be trying to like give her a laugh on her way out. <laughs> but I was like, I'm going to take this seriously. And I'm going to tell my mother how much I love her. And like, then she had to watch me and Carmen, you know, arguing about nothing. And then <laughs> so quickly, she was like, are you sure? <laughs> God, what? Like, Rest and piss, you bozo. Like, well, who does that? Who does that? 
But so like <laughs> in, in the moment, and again, like, I don't know if I have just built up a callus or what, but in the moment, like after I told Jane about it, we both like just started laughing and she's like, you know, you know, you'd prefer it this way. And I was like, yeah, because it's a hilarious, wait till I tell everyone at the funeral what she did to me. But I don't, I mean, like, so it's in like instances like that, that I'm like, oh, thank God I can, you know, metabolize this and make it funny rather than like letting it ruin the rest of my life. Cause it could, if I was a different person, like that is some terrible shit to say to your child that honestly, you didn't even really get to know that long. She went into a nursing home when I was 13 or 14 and she died when I was 18. So that's like five years five really important years of my growing up that she wasn't there. She's not going to be there for the rest of my life. (laughs) What a fucking bitch to then be like, are you sure you love me? Are you sure you love me? You're the one who's dying. You should have taken better care of yourself. (laughs) What is, yeah. What did she, she went to do a nursing home with MS. Is that what it was? Yeah. Yeah. She, I mean, back then, when she got pregnant with me, I was, so she got pregnant in 1979. The doctor, like the OB was like, Grace, get an abortion. (laughs) My mom was like, oh no, you know, and I think, and I get it. She had my sisters when she was 16, 18, and 21, right? You're not like a mom who's packing lunches, right? She's like, trying to graduate high school she's not and and you can tell by my early childhood or it's really apparent to me what she was trying to do I have every lesson on earth I have taken it right like I used to ice skate I play the piano I play the clarinet I play the flute I play the saxophone I I learned to read at two because she was reading to me constantly she took me to test into school early so I started kindergarten at four which is why I was in college at 17 and it's like it's so clear to me that she was like okay I couldn't do anything with my older kids because like I didn't have anything I couldn't you know I couldn't take time off work I'm really gonna do a lot with the last one. And so like, I get it. But also the OB was like, you should not have this baby. That's crazy. Don't have a baby. Your Her MS was in remission at the time she got pregnant and didn't come out until, didn't come out of remission until I was 10. She had a bad car accident and hit her head on the rear view mirror had a blood clot in her brain that had to be taken out. And then the MS was like, hello. And then she and I lived together for three excruciating years on our own as, as her MS was out of remission. But it is like, I understand why. And honestly, if you met my sisters, you'd be like, they needed another one, right? Like, 
they need they needed someone good. <laughs> but that decision now is like, okay, you made it, and now your doctor, like what your doctor said is true. Like you're not gonna be around to like know your kid. And that to me, that's my my one low regret is the wrong word. For writer, I have a terrible vocabulary. But the the one thing that is like kind of an aw shucks about her dying specifically is we never got to the point where like you could talk to your mom like a person. Where like I don't know anything about my mother. Like I could not look at a menu and tell you what she'd order from it, right? I couldn't, I could tell you what shows she watched in the 80s and maybe that would inform like what she would watch now. But I mean, my mom would fully be on the Tyler Perry BET nightly (laughs) watching. (laughs) You know, all those black shows where people are like, did you watch The Oval? And you're like, I've never heard of that. Don't talk to me about that old black people shit. But, um, (laughs) so... I, but I never got to like, I don't know if she ordered a drink, what kind of drink she would want or her like basic opinion. I mean, I know her politics, uh, you know, meaning that she voted Democrat in Chicago like everyone else. But I don't, I never got to the point where we could like talk to each other as equals. I mean, there's always going to be a little bit of a power imbalance, but as equals and that to me especially now when I see like my friends and like my wife both of her parents are alive it's like ooh, I don't have you know it's just like I imagine it's just like there's something about talking to the person who like gave birth to you and saw you as a baby and is proud of what you've done and like my sister's you know, your siblings are always going to have that, like, sibling edge where they'll be like, I'm proud of you, but those pants look dumb. You know what I mean? It's like... <laughs> right. I'm proud... I got to take you down a peg. <laughs> yeah. I'm proud of you, but I wish you would stop using natural deodorant. You know what I mean? It's always something. There's <laughs> always a caveat. So I do... I, with my dad, I don't know that... I, I feel like if my dad were still alive, I... I would just be cleaning up his messes all the time. Like his, he got drunk and did this or he gambled and can't pay this person back. So he, he can stay dead. But if my mom, (laughs) if I could bring back one of them, I would bring her back truly just to be like, so what are you into? Like, what do you, what do you like to do? I, I have no, because like she was doing like mom stuff and we didn't have, I don't know if this is like a cultural thing or just like an age thing, but we didn't have a like, tell your kids what you're doing, where you're going, what you're thinking about kind of relationship. Like she told me what to do or where to go and like, talk to me about my stuff. But she never was like, God, you know, I really had a hard day at work today. And so it's like, there are just like basic things that I don't know about her that I would I would love to. That's like the regret. Regret's the wrong word, but you know what I'm saying. Sure, sure. 
Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And are there any other funny people in your family? Like, are either were either of your parents really funny? Siblings? Like, or is it just are you the the one? I I have one sister who is amusing because she's so mean. <laughs> like, she doesn't make jokes. She's just the kind of person that makes you laugh because she is just, like, a lit match. You know what I mean? You see, like, when you see a toddler who's, like, having a tantrum and you're like, <laughs> that little idiot is so funny. That's that's what she's like. <laughs> no, I my dad was very charming, and I can be very charming I mean truly I don't say this as a brag like I just don't think there's anyone who meets me and is like personality is terrible I think like that I got from him like being smooth charming you know like ingratiating yourself to people oh my god I'm so good at like pretending I'm in love with someone I just met and like have them feel that what what are you trying to tell me here? <laughs> oh, yeah, you're going to be in love with me by the end of this. I know. You're going to be trying to fly me out to Palm Springs while we're done. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I don't think, and there's no one who, like, we all are kind of like silly and good. We're not serious people, but I don't think, like, if you, like, went to dinner with one of my sisters, you'd be laughing. You'd be like, how are you and Sam related? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, y'all don't have the same dad. Got it. You know? Um, but I did, I think growing up, uh, we were a very lax TV house and I watched a lot of old standup. I mean, like Eddie Murphy raw every day on VHS, Robin Harris, every episode of Sanford and Son and what's happening. Like I watched so much raunchy stand-up and like the kind of stand-up that truly is storytelling and like you're on the edge of your seat 
I, I definitely think I got a lot of my kind of like stage presence from watching stand-ups, but I will never do stand-up because it's truly like the only genre of performance where like the audience is encouraged to like hurt the feelings of the person on stage. And it's like, listen guys, uh, I'm about to read 2000 words of me hurting my own feelings. I don't need <laughs> any I don't need any help, but I do think I I picked up a lot of like my storytelling you know, like, like the cheekiness, you know how there, there are standups who do the kind of like shy thing before that Bernie Mac would like give the audience a look before he laid down the punchline like that. I definitely took a lot of cues from standup comics. I was really into stand-up comedy myself when yeah. I was a kid. Like yeah. I, I revere, I revere comedians and I remember watching Eddie Murphy delirious and Eddie Murphy raw like they were the greatest thing. Some of this is generational. Like yeah. I was born in 75, so I'm yeah. a bit older than you, but man, Eddie Murphy was the shit when I was young. In he was it. Incredible. Incredible. Just in the way he his command over an audience, his and I think one of the things about him specifically that I love so much is how you know, he truly is telling, like, stories, like, from his life and, like, his childhood. And it's, like, we all probably have similar moments, but, like, not all of us can, like, write or talk about them in that way. And that was, like, a big thing for me. It's, like, one of his bits, the bit about how he asks his mom for McDonald's and she's like, McDonald's, we got ground beef at home. And he goes through explaining like the difference between a house burger on Wonder Bread with onions and green peppers sticking out of it versus a beautiful little compact sandwich from McDonald's. It's like, you, yes, we all relate. We all have like moments with our parents where they're like, milkshake. I got ice cream at home. I'll make you a milkshake. And it's like, well, I don't want your ice cream and milk in the broken blender. I don't want that. I want the kind from McDonald's that's already a shake. Like we all can relate, but we all can't tell the hamburger story in a way that is both compelling, relatable, and funny. And like, that that's what, and that's what you do. That's what you do. Yeah. yeah I was going to say, that's like, that's the, that's the, the job that you're doing, you know, just in literature as opposed to on stage as a comedian. Yeah. And, you know, the book that, um, you know, we're talking about is called Quietly Hostile. And <laughs> there's a line where you say, quietly hostile is how I would describe my public personality. So, there's the issue of being funny. There's the issue of grief and sadness and all of the challenges that we've been talking about that you grew up with. But then there's also the issue of anger because how could you not be? I mean, we all deal with it as human beings, but especially somebody who had to deal with so much hardship at such a young age and had so many cards stacked against her. <laughs> there has to be some element of anger in you 
and and all funny people, right? It's like it's part of the equation. Yeah, I I feel like the the funny is what keeps me from you know beating people in the grocery store, or whatever you or whatever I'd be doing. You know what I mean? It's like I could make a joke, or I could strangle this woman in the wine aisle, and so I just make the joke. It's uh. Yeah, trying to, it definitely is a challenge. (laughs) If something that is like, because I'm the kind of person who, like, truly, I will let my organs boil in my rage-filled blood before I'll, like, have a confrontation with someone. Like, I'm like, you know what, I really should cuss him out. But I don't want anybody to see me cussing him out. And what if I'm wrong? <laughs> you know, like, I'm like, I just, okay, uh, it's going to boil my gallbladder till I can't use it anymore. Great. Let's do that. So I am, I am always pissed off. I think, though, I don't know if this is going to make sense, but like, my number one, like, person or entity to be angry with is like the universe, right? It's like, I didn't. I did not get a fair fucking shake. Who do I talk to? Who do I... And and because there's no one, it's like, well, I better figure out how to get over it and, like, extract what I can from it, which is hopefully a joke. Hopefully 2,000 words worth of a joke so that I can put it somewhere. But I do... I get... It's so, especially now, like I've had some success, right? And it's like a not huge amount of money changed my life in such a big way. And it's like, it could, I had to work so long and so hard, which is fine. But it also is like, I have a little like guilt, guilty anger, you know, for people who, who are still struggling but uh, like all the things that that truly make me mad are things that like there's no complaint box you know so it's like I could be walking around mad as hell or I just like try to find the piece of ridiculousness and like laugh about that but it is it's hard I mean it's really hard, especially because, like, thinking about just things like, you know, if my if my mom had access to better drugs, like, maybe she'd be alive, you know? Or, like, if, if my dad could have just, like, if one of those programs would have worked. It's like, I could think about stuff like that all day, and it would drive me crazy, but I could, or I can just try to like chalk it up to the absurdity of being alive. It It's not always easy. Like sometimes I do just get so mad. I do. You know what? I also get like really mad at my parents specifically, like for the uh, specific injustices they've caused in my life. I mean, Thinking about the doctor telling my mom not to have me, 
is a thing like that I think about often because I'm like, yo, is that why I have this like body that does not work no matter what I do to it? Like if you had not been selfish and wanted a baby so bad, I wouldn't be on earth struggling. I'd still be, I don't know, where do eggs go? I'd be flushed on a tampon. <laughs> Just blissfully, blissfully yes. flushed. <laughs> yeah, I would be floating in a canal somewhere, minding my little bloody business. But instead, I'm like fucking trying to figure out how to pay taxes. You know, but listen, and but listen, you've had a in a lot of ways a rich life too. Yes. I mean, you know, no, life's rich good. pageant. It's good, but but that's just when I get down in the like when I really wall when I don't turn to the humor, like when I really wallow in it. I go all the way back to like pre to embryo Sam and. <laughs> Well, you might as well start at the beginning, right? If you're going to be comprehensive <laughs> like, about this. This is wrong. And if they would have done that, this would have been better. You know, just, just, I try to, st- I try to avoid the anger because it will pull you in and it makes you irrational. And it has me like worked up about, you know, it'll get me worked up about either systems that I can't change or people who are dead. And it's like, yeah. What what does that get me? Then I'm just like pissed off at no one. Well, you dedicate the book to Zoloft. Yes. So I think that is an acknowledgement that there is like like in any human life, there's real pain at the heart of the comedy, right? Yes. Oh, the Zoloft, I have uh, my bottle right here. <laughs> it, Never leave home without it. I, I can't. I have to take like 300 milligrams of it to get my my eggs unscrambled. I got diagnosed like nine-ish months ago with OCD, which I mean, the next book is just going to be about like OCD exposure therapy and how terrible that is. But so I'm on the Zoloft to like counter, counteract some of the OCD stuff. And it has... I don't know if it's working, but it hasn't like made me puke. And that to me is a win. I'm like, (laughs) eventually my brain will be right. But as long as my stomach doesn't reject it, we're, we're good. I'm putting a lot of faith in Zoloft. That's why I dedicated the book to it because I feel like when I get up to my therapeutic dose, it will solve all my problems. (laughs) Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. So yes. you t- you talk about your body in this book, and yeah. you mentioned just a minute ago about how you have you know you have, there's like health problems. There's Crohn's disease, I believe, yeah. IBS, Which OCD. Is the worst. The Crohn's is like, you know what's funny is these commercials that are like on primetime television now, where you like see a guy who's like. Ooh, and then he like goes and takes his like I don't know, not Sky Rizzy, but one of those. <laughs> By the way, can we just can we just have a moment to acknowledge that Sky Rizzy is the dumbest fucking name for a drug? It's so terrible. Annoying. Also, yeah. when will they start putting like what it's for in the name? Right, like just 
It's too confusing. Just call it like skin Rizzy. Like if you're gonna call it Sky Rizzy, it's for your skin, skin Rizzy. So, <laughs> but you see these like commercials where the and so on the one hand, I'm like, oh my God, thank God it's being normalized. Cause all I ever want to do is like I would like my lasting impact on the world to be that I just made everybody talk about their shitting all the time like that's that's what i'm trying to do (laughs) (laughs) but like seeing these commercials where it's like a guy's like ooh, and then he like goes and sits in an airport bathroom that is not real (laughs) that is not realistic like we're we're getting closer i uh, in december i had get ready for this three rectal ulcers i did not know you could get a rectal ulcer let alone three it is like i mean you're really gonna have to like put your imagination hat on it is like getting struck by lightning in the asshole every (laughs) time you move or sit or breathe (laughs) it was like crazy i thought i was gonna lose my mind it was the craziest pain it's it like stings it you will jump out of a chair and i'm like where put this on tv tell people just i think sometimes when you have a thing that people can't see or you have a thing that you've had for a long time and so like my friends it's all normalized for us right like if i say i'm gonna go to the bathroom they know like Take your shoes off. It might be a minute. Like, relax. (laughs) Go get a snack. I'm going to be indisposed for 20 minutes. Um, And so, like, that's good. But I don't think we, and this goes for a lot of, like, silent or invisible diseases. Is that what they call them? Um, Where it just, where you, you don't know about how bad it can be. And so, like, sometimes people will ask, I don't know, just, like, ask me to do things that I'm, like, if you thought for five seconds about how my body responds to literally anything, you wouldn't have asked me to do this eight-hour whatever. You know, I can't do the sit-a-thon because (laughs) I have a hemorrhoid hanging out of my asshole. You know what I mean? (laughs) So, I am... Glad that we, that it's on TV and people know that it exists. And now it's my mission to be like, okay, I know you've seen the commercials, but has anyone ever talked to you about what a hemorrhoid feels like when you have one (laughs) on the inside and the outside? Like that's next. That is my new mission to talk about like the horrors surrounding the condition, just so people know. You know, that I'm essentially a soldier. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> fighting the good fight. And I feel like what, you, what we're talking about, or what you're talking about here has to do with candor. And this is something that like, distinguishes your work. It is so unbelievably candid. And as I mentioned, like, I think at the top, it's also, you're, you're an incredible voice writer. The effect that I received reading your book 
was the feeling of you talking to me. Mm-hmm. And it's very intimate and it's you right there. Mm-hmm. But I know from experience that that's not easy to do. To deliver that effect, to have that kind of talky intimacy on the page and this feeling of like really strong, like like verbal energy. Uh, it's not as simple. I mean, if it were if it were simple, you would just kind of record yourself talking and then transcribe it, right? <laughs> there's there's a lot of a lot of craft that goes into achieving that effect, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering how easily it comes to you because I do feel you have so much innate. I mean, you can just hear it in the conversation we're having now. You have so much innate verbal capacity, and you're so funny, and it just kind of flows. But how much struggle is there in getting it down on the page in to its final form? Wow. That's a good question. (laughs) You're good at this. I listened to a bunch of episodes before we started, but I'm like, Brad's really doing it. Okay. (laughs) I, okay. So this is kind of like a multiple answer, like depending on the kind of thing I'm writing, the hardest things, always the things that are a balance of sad and happy because I don't do sadness generally and and it does not come easily to me, I worry about le- like it being like schlocky, you know, or like leaning like too saccharine, too sappy, too like, am I writing this like a lifetime movie kind of thing? So I tend to, if I'm writing like uh, the essay where I talk about my mom and like meeting my, my brother or reconnecting with my brother, it's like, I, I err on the side of less sentimental because I'm, I'm so, I don't know that I do sentiment very well without it feeling cheesy or without it feeling like I'm imitating someone else. That's the big thing is like, how, how do I get something serious on the page without sounding like I'm like cosplaying as I don't even know who writes sensitive stuff, whoever Oprah likes, right? Like I'm like, Oh, (laughs) I'm, I'm in my Deepak Chopra era. You know what I mean? It's like, I can't do that. I have to like have it be me. So those kind of take a while, like for me to get comfortable and then to not throw in a horrible joke when I'm trying to be serious. So that takes a little effort. There is an essay that is not in the galley. So we have to send you a a real copy of the book that I wrote about how much I love QVC. Oh yeah. I didn't read that one. You didn't read it or you did? I I have the galley, I believe. Oh, okay. We'll send you a real copy. It, uh, or you can be like, fuck you, bitch. I've read enough. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Which is, I get that just, I sat down, wrote it and it was done. I love QVC. I had a lot to say about it. It just flowed out. And so like that tends to be how it goes. Like funny stuff just goes and I have two secrets that I'm going to tell to your audience for how to how I do what I do I don't know if this will help anyone else first I always have the ending always I always know maybe sometimes even the final sentence is written in my notes but I know where I'm going 
And for me, it's always easier to write to a destination, right? Or even if I know the end, I can like, I can work on the outline backwards and be like, okay, well, I want to talk about this thing before that, but then this has to come way before that. And then just kind of like piece it together that way. But I I truly, if I don't have an ending, I can't write it. Like I had started an essay for this collection about starting therapy um, because I had started cognitive behavioral therapy like a, a while before I started writing the book. And I couldn't, because I'm not done with therapy, I'm not cured. I didn't have any like anything final to say about it. I didn't have an ending and I do, I have like 500 words of a beginning, but I couldn't land the plane. I didn't know how I was going to do it. So I pushed that to the side. So that's one thing that helps me. And then the other thing, this isn't really a secret, but in terms of like getting, I mean, my tone is always like the same in my head, right? Like it's always like me writing. I have ways that I say things, you know, bits the whole thing. But one thing that helps me for it to like feel conversational, because that's how I want it to feel. I do want you to be like, my old friend, Sam, look at this scamp. She's so funny, you know, um, is to, I think of someone, like I'll think of one of my best friends and write it as if I'm telling it to them. Like, how would I tell this to Ian? How would I tell this to Jesse? And in my head, I just sort of like picture them and then kind of like write to them. And Ah. that really helps it like feel conversational. That makes a lot of sense. And something I would add, and you can disagree with me if I'm wrong, uh, is that when I'm reading your work, one of the things that occurred to me, because I was like, how is she so consistently funny? How did she arrive at this voice? that is both like, has this like, it feels casual and intimate, but also literary. And then like when you add it all up and it goes over well, one of the things that occurs to me is like, you know, this is not shtick. Mm-hmm. Like she means this stuff. I think that maybe somebody sitting down with the aspiration to write funny might make the error of being like, I'm just gonna look for the joke and put on like a funny air. The reason I think your work goes over well is that however funny it is, whatever like postures you know you might be falling into or bits that you might be doing, at the heart of the work, you mean it. Yeah. It's authentic. Yeah. It's not just you looking for a joke. It's you looking for a joke in the course of it authentically exploring how you think and feel. Yes. It's an important distinction, right? Yes. Yeah. It's definite. And I think that's another... honestly this is on my mind because you would not believe how many people ask why I don't do stand-up but what we're talking about is like the reason I don't do stand-up is I do want it if I feel it and believe it then I'm gonna say it and I don't ever want anyone to be like oh is she creating a character because that's I don't want that and I've never had any desire to like And you know why it comes, (laughs) I mean, I wish I could be like, oh, I have a ton of artistic integrity, which I obviously do, but um, (laughs) it's a trap. If you're anyone other than yourself, 
you can't meet people, you can't go on tour, you can't do an interview, because then it's just like work to keep this persona going, right? It's like, you gotta, I gotta remember, like, okay, what did I say? What do I believe? Hmm, okay, to this person, I hate men. Let me make sure I talk about how much I hate, you know, it's so, it's hard, that makes life hard for me. So if I am myself, and I think sometimes like people get uncomfortable with how self-deprecating I am, you know, and I'm always like the villain of my own story, like at the heart, it's about how I messed something up or felt something wrong or interpreted something the bad way in or like in the worst way. But it's just, it truly, it keeps me from I just never want anyone and we all know writers who like feel like they are on top of a mountain reading their words from a golden scroll handed down by Jesus himself and it's like I was eating Panera when I wrote this you know what I mean like I'm not gonna put on airs like that's crazy so I think like it would like it humiliated me so much to like have a persona, but, but mostly I could never keep it up. I could never, I'm so lazy. I'm so forgetful. I get stoned every day. I would be like, do okay. This is so stupid. Did you ever see the movie, the stepfather? It's like a 90 minute horror movie. Doesn't matter. Is it, wait, wait, is this like early nineties? Is it like, yeah, like Dylan Baker's the stepdad and the kid gossip girl is in it. I think I, yeah, I think I might've seen it. It's just been a minute. (laughs) There's, so this guy is like using a fake identity and he's going to kill his uh, new family and he goes from family to family changing his identity. And at one point they're in a fight. And he calls himself the wrong name. And the wife is like, what? And he's like, wait, who am I here? That is a feeling I do not ever want to have. Like where I've given the impression to someone. Honestly, that's why I never am like, I'm smart. Because people people expect you to be smart then. And this way, I'm always a pleasant surprise. <laughs> you know? like, oh man, she kept telling us how stupid she was, but she actually was okay. That's intentional. <laughs> your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so here's a here's a 
maybe an unanswerable question, but it's one that I can't help but ask every time I read somebody who works in the vein that you do, is able to be funny on the page, is able to go places that most writers wouldn't dare to go, say the unsayable, go into the scatological, (laughs) and and just, just wherever. You can get away with anything. And I think particularly in this day and age of social media and it's easy to step in it, right? You could say something that people would recoil from. And so I think in particular, when you're doing blue humor, there is some fear, at least from my perspective, involved. Like, should I make this joke? If I make this joke, is somebody going to get their feelings hurt? Am I going to get called out on social media? This, that, and the other. And what it feels like to me, like the metaphor that comes to mind is like walking on a tightrope, you know? And I marvel at your work because I'm like, it's like there, you never slip. Like you can go anywhere. The audience is with you. Do you have a sense of how to do that? Do you just not give a fuck? Do you have to just turn off that part of your brain? Or do you think that part of your skill as a writer is having a very well-developed sense of an audience and just being tuned into where to step and where not to step? I, okay, so I think about this probably more than I should uh, because I am so I I am sensitive both to like what other people need or want but also to people who like misunderstand me or you know want to yell at me about something I've done which is fine like whatever I I think in the writing, like one of the things that it, it it's very freeing that my parents are dead, right? There's no one who is going to be like, you have shamed the family. <laughs> like, I just don't have those pressures, right? Like that right. deep, like you are destroying a family. So that that's like the first thing that's like, I can be free. I can say whatever. I think having come from like blogging like in the late two thousand late two thousands. Um, bitches gotta eat. Yes. Yeah. That, the name of your blog. Yes. Please. It's well, we can talk about this maybe next book, but I'm doing a like retrospective for the next book where I take my old blog posts and like am in conversation with them because uh, it was like a chronicle of my thirties and now I'm in my forties and seeing what, how new Sam feels about old Sam. But I think like coming from a blogging during that time, like pre okay. See, I'm going to switch this answer a little. I feel like we live in a gotcha time, Right. Everyone is just, they don't even like consider the thing. They're just parsing through it to find where you fucked up and how quickly they could tell someone else you fucked up. They don't tell you, but how quickly they could tell someone else that you fucked up and then start talking about whatever it is you've done. I cannot care about that because I know I know what I am and I know what I'm not, right? Like, I know 
what my politics are. I know how I feel about groups of people. Like, I don't really have a problem with anybody. I want everybody to do what they want to do as long as it doesn't fuck with my shit in any way. Uh, I feel like children are starving and need welfare and education. But, you know, so, right, like, so I'm like, I don't have any politics that are, like, incendiary or would get the kind of people who would read my work to not read it anymore. So I think, like, generally, as long as I stay where I'm acquainted, (laughs) as long as I stay in the subjects that that I know, then I don't worry about what I'm saying. I really, cause I know it's, I haven't said anything like broadly offensive or that like betrays something I hold dear. So it's like, for instance, once my friend sent me a picture, she works in a library. Some lady took out my book she, it was the original meaty that had a chicken on the cover. I don't know if she thought it was about farming or chicken meat or what, but she wrote a letter to the library about having this filth on, on their shelves. And there's a chapter in that book called Sorry I Shit on Your Dick. <laughs> so, like... I'm like, I get it, ma'am. I okay, all right, I get it. Uh, but it's like some prude getting mad about like my cuss words or whatever. Like, I don't give a shit about. I don't want to hurt anyone who is worse off than I am. Like, that's basically it. I do. Don't pun- don't gonna, punch down. Yeah, I'm never gonna shit on somebody who uh, I would be looking down at, or not even looking down at, but like in a better position then. So I don't worry about that because I know I don't do that shit. A thing I do worry about is that things are changing so quickly that like I don't always know what's offensive because that shit changes. So for this book, we had a sensitivity reader And I only got one thing flagged and I changed it. And so like, and again, I don't want to look like a dinosaur. I don't want to not keep up with things, but also I I can't let, (laughs) I can't let motherfuckers who do not have receipts for purchasing my books tell me shit. I don't really worry about a goddamn thing. I'm like, if you, you can't be scared of people on the internet, right? Like I just, I am. And I just remind myself that I don't have to be all the time. And it's especially because I think maybe I'd worry about it more. I have a a thing in this book where I'm like, I will argue with people on the internet when they can upload their IDs. And so I know who I'm talking to because you know who I am, right? Like I wrote up, this shit has my name on it. You know that it's me, but like arguing with someone who's like disingenuous, like a 13 year old who's like, you know, just wants to say something dumb. I can't, I can't think about that stuff. Cause it's like, it's not real. 
you know? And you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to function as an artist. No. I mean, I, I think, I just think, I don't know, personally, I have like almost ultimate tolerance for people if I know that they are in good faith trying to yes, be funny. That is the thing is there's no benefit of the doubt anymore. Like you'll hear a thing and you'll be like, oh, I know her. She didn't mean that like that. But it's like, because like people can anonymously like say, yes, she did. Then, then, you know, the, the firing squad comes out. I also am like, I am the kind of person who, one thing that like befuddles me, if I see a movie I don't like, I don't have to get online and tell people I don't like it. I just will never watch that movie again. But the thing that, and like, if you want to bitch about things online, great. You have a community to do that. Perfect. The thing that like kills me is the like, I don't like this. It must change. And I'm like, well, don't look at it. Don't read it. Many, many, not as many people as I would like want to read about piss and shit all the time. (laughs) I would tell those people not to read my books. I'm not going to change what I write to like for $17 that a random house gets. Fuck that. I'm going to write what I want. (laughs) I'll change my shit for somebody who's like, I'll buy a hundred thousand copies. I'll write whatever the fuck you want. But like (laughs) most of the people who get mad, don't even buy your shit anyway. And I hate to make it about like dollars, but truly that's, that's where it goes for me is like, I can't be making every Tom, Dick and Harry who just like happened across the thing I wrote and decided that I'm a piece of shit. I can't be kowtowing to them, but I especially cannot be kowtowing to them without proof that they have spent money on my work. There you go. You can, that's why I will always talk to someone at a reading who has my book in their hand with the receipt stuck inside because I'm like, <laughs> you can give me an opinion. You paid. People who didn't pay, fuck them. I, oh my God. Okay, so before I, before you were able to change Instagram settings so that people couldn't tag you, when Wow No Thank You came out, somebody posted it on their Instagram. And was like, I like this book or whatever and tag me. Fine. I'm, I'm not going to comment. I'm not going to look. I don't care. But then somebody in the in their comments tagged me to say there was a stunning lack of race and class analysis in this book. I'm like, Brad, when I tell you that if I had a rocket and could get to her, (laughs) I would have used it. So I commented back. And first of all, imagine picking up a book with a fucking bunny on it and being like, can't wait to get into the race and class analysis here. We, I advertise what the shit is. Right. You look at the cover, nobody's thinking, hmm, deep sociological dive. They're thinking <laughs> fart jokes. And like, it's not my fault if you picked up the fart joke book and it doesn't have like a breakdown of the sociopolitical goings on in America right now. So I commented back and I was like, this book costs $13 on Amazon. It's paperback. I only went to high school. 
you better go to Ta-Nehisi Coates with that and leave me alone. Right. And then she was like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm like, I wouldn't have seen that if she hadn't tagged me. But like, I'm almost grateful that she did because people are not making good faith. There are very few good faith criticisms that take what you actually do or did into account, right? And it's like, I can't be beholden to somebody's personal things. If I say something about a community, which is not a thing I do, I'll eat shit, right? Like, I will eat shit for that. But like, you know, just because you wanted a history book and I like describe my labial folds in excruciating <laughs> detail. Like that doesn't make my book bad. It's just not what you wanted to read. I mean, maybe it yeah. does make my book bad because who wants to read labia? <laughs> but for in this case, it makes my book good. And <laughs> you can go read other stuff. You just that's right. Read something else. That this whole thing, like. I don't like it, therefore it should not exist, is bananas to me. It's bananas. I agree. People need to lighten the fuck up. Yes. I, you know, a lot of it the time. It is not I mean, that some... serious. Like, go adopt a dog or something. Like, are you bored? Go do something. Oh, God. <laughs> well, listen, I could talk to you all day. I I have to say that the career you've built for yourself writing these really successful books, these really funny books, these books that are all like kind of branded the same way. Like you've got like a, you've got a series going, which I love. And on top of that, you're writing for television. I believe you've written for Lindy West's show Shrill, Showtime's work in progress. Are you now writing for HBO's? Am I, do I have, am I up to date? And just like that. Just like that. I worked on season two, the trailer came out a couple days ago. That's a whole, I mean, we should do a podcast on writing for TV. I'll talk about that more next time, how uh, insane TV feedback is. Because the thing about books is nobody fucking reads, right? It's like you, me, and six other people reading books. (laughs) Uh, But everybody watches TV. And like the deluge of TV opinions versus like, the six book opinions. <laughs> it's right, like, right. Whew, it's, I was not ready to work on a big show or I was not ready to watch the culture hate this big show that I worked on. That really fucked me up. Oh, oh, oh my God. Damn. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a crazy business too. Ugh, the business side of it, the taking the meetings and the f- feedback and the. It's so do, dumb. That's the thing about LA that, that I both love and hate is people are always like, oh, everyone in LA is rude. Never. Everybody I've ever met in Los Angeles, nicest fucking person you want to meet. You want to take, you want them to be your child's godmother, all of it. But they don't say the truth to you, which is the the drawback. Like I have never walked out of a meeting being like, Ooh, that dude really hated my fucking guts. I'm like, Oh no, no, no. He would like to de-lesbianize me. And it's like, <laughs> no, he actually right. hated my fucking guts. He's just very good at convincing me otherwise. 
I, I'm, I mean, I've been in a million general meetings yeah. and every time I, every time I walk out, I'm like, I think like we're going to be, if, if we don't do business together, like, I think we're going to be friends. Yes! <laughs> and then you never hear a fucking word from them ever, ever again for the rest of your life. Ever. I, I know I'm at the point where, and this like feels bratty, but, but it's because of the books that I can kind of be like a bitch about Hollywood. I'm like, I can't take a meeting unless they're offering me a job. Like, the t- I will tap dance and do whatever I got to do if they're like, here's a paycheck at the end. But like just right. to meet because they're quote unquote big fans. No, I don't Fuck do that. those anymore. No. Yeah. Good for you. Good for you. That's the way to be. Because like I, this is a bunch of bullshit otherwise. Yes. And what a what. There's just people and like people who work in quote unquote development who just have empty calendars and need to fill them up. I know. That's it. Why does development take so fuck? They have all the time for meetings, but then when you turn in a thing to them, oh, hear from you in six months. Okay, great. (laughs) Yeah. The gears of the machine slow down all of a sudden to a fucking yeah. Yeah, crawl. They're like, oh, we got you now. Uh, what was the option? We gave you $2,000 that your agent took 1800 of. Okay, cool. Yeah. Now that we've got you locked in, why do you take eight months to work on the thing we actually might pay you to make? It's uh-huh. gross. It's definitely for... I didn't start feeling old till I started like counting my time in Hollywood years. Of there in the book, I do the the kind of like the list of things that have happened since I started being in development on my show, and like counting up the birthdays. <laughs> it's like, but the full humans, adults, have grown from my wife's children since we started this uh, this this thing that's never gonna be anything. Like I gotta get out of it, so I'm. Now I'm like, I'll work on and just like that because it's the best and I love everyone there and it's a moneymaker for HBO. So I don't think they're going to like cut us off. But the idea that I might get anything of my own made, I just had, I was in development with Sony and I just had, they, they ultimately rejected my script for, Honestly, I'm going to email it to you. This killer show idea that I think they're missing out. But it's like the books, books have never treated me the way Hollywood has. So don't worry. I will be staying here <laughs> for the foreseeable well, future. Listen, the odds of somebody with your childhood building the kind of career that you've built are not they're pretty long odds yeah. like you've managed to do something that's really incredible i hope you appreciate it oh my uh, god not like not not like great i'm grateful for it but i hope you can can kind of pat yourself on the back a little bit like I'm this is amazing bad at that i'm bad at the back padding but i will say like that somebody hit me up the other day and was like hey I want to get into TV writing. Can we talk? And I was like, yeah, we can talk anytime. But my path has been so weird, like untraditional is the nice way to say it. Like uh, there's no nepotism. There's no, I went to school with, you know, I went to Harvard when we were on the Lampoon and my friend got me a job. Like there was none of that. And I do 
There were so many like right place, right time things. I got my agent. So Meaty first came out on an indie Chicago press. Uh, Minimal distribution, like just tiny. And somehow my now agent got a copy, found me and was like, do you have representation? And I was like, no, for what? And he's like a literary agent. And I was like, who, oh, who is it? No, it's Kent Wolf. Oh my God. I love him. He truly, he's very mean and I'm scared of him, but I also love him. <laughs> but it, like he called, he called me on the phone. We watched like in our separate apartments, watched the Oscars red carpet. And then at the end, I was like, okay, so you're my agent now, right? And he was like, yeah. And then he's like, do you, so what ideas do you have for your next book? He was like, oh, I don't have any ideas. I thought you would just like be my agent. And when I came up with something, you would sell it. And he's like, come up with something. I'd love to sell it. Like I had no idea what I was doing. And so like coming from that, which was essentially like truly printed out blogs stapled together and hot glued with a cover to like getting this agent who the first time I walked into the random house offices, I was like, I almost shit. You know what I mean? It's just like, <laughs> are you kidding me? My first audiobook, when I recorded it for We're Never Meeting in Real Life, I get a thing from an email from the producer. And he's like, you know, we're going to set up this time, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, uh, I'm not available to direct you. I would love to, but I'm going to be directing Barack Obama's audiobook. And I was like, what? Like, you know what I mean? Like I was scooping cat shit two years before this. Right. And getting like yelled. Working at an, working at an animal house. Yes. Yes. Oh, sorry. Everyone who has not read my entire oath. Um, yeah. Working at an animal hospital, getting bit by fucking min pins. And now I'm emailing a dude who's like telling Barack Obama to like, slow down when he reads it's <laughs> i will never not be like dazzled by this whole thing because it like it really is like amazing and i get to stay down to earth because i fucking live in kalamazoo michigan nobody is checking for me here nobody's like oh sam can't wait to read your new book they're like uh next <laughs> ma'am <laughs> it's your turn yeah and like it's it it is like really amazing. Like when I stop and think about it, I am really amazed and really proud of myself, and also a little bit in disbelief, and yeah. also waiting for the other shoe to drop. So I got to get as many books out as they will buy from me <laughs> before they're like, okay, fat black bitches are out. Goodbye. <laughs> Well, I always ask my guests if what I mean, I know you have a lot going on. You're writing for TV. It sounds like you have that other book about what where you're reacting to your old blogs. Is that oh, the yeah, next book? That, I talked to my editor yesterday. She's like, yeah, can you get back to me in 11 months? And I was like, 
I'll start it in nine months and then we'll see what happens. Well, I hope she doesn't listen to this, but I mean, let me fix that. I'm diligently working on that. <laughs> well, it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you. I could keep going. I mean, I could, we could talk too. all day and I, I hope to have another chance to, uh, literally to have you on. Any time. Well, Sam, congratulations again on Quietly Hostile. It is hilarious as all of your work is. Thank you. Congratu- congratulations on working. What, what's it called again? And just like that. That's the, yeah. forgive me, I'm terrible at television, no, but that's the Sarah Jessica Parker. Reboot. I mean, everyone just calls it Sex in the City. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. So that's a big show. And yeah. uh, look forward to whatever you come up with next in, uh, you know, in your book work and wish you well. Thank you. I can't wait to come on every single time I have anything coming out. Get ready. <laughs> I'm going to feel like a co-host. Thank you for- this was truly like the greatest conversation. And I'm so grateful that you had me on. And that you asked such thoughtful questions and made me think and we could talk about Eddie Murphy. I mean, this was really, I mean, I hope we could be friends. I'm saying this so other people can hear it and force you to be my friend. So hoping we can be friends. <laughs> we could be friends. I'll be your friend. Great. We're, offic- we're officially friends as of, as of right best, now. Best interview I've ever had. Okay, there we have it, folks. That was my conversation with... Samantha Irby. That was the Samantha Irby experience. What did you think? Her new essay collection is called Quietly Hostile. It is out there now from Vintage. You can find Samantha Irby online at samanthairby.com. You can also read her blog. It is called Bitches Gotta Eat. So check that out. You can track her down on social media. She is on Instagram. One more time, the new book is called Quietly Hostile. It is outrageous. Go get your copy right away. The Other People Podcast is offered freely. If you love this show, if you had a good experience, I hope you will support this show for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash other PPL pod. Help keep this show going into the future. If you want to get another people t-shirt, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. If you want to sign up for my free once-a-week email newsletter, you can do so at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. Please remember to rate and review this podcast wherever you are listening. It helps new listeners find the show. Watch the Other People Show on YouTube. Find the Other People YouTube channel. Search for it by name, Other PPL. And when you get there, hit the subscribe button. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Email me. If you so desire, if you have feedback, the address is letters at otherppl.com. And finally, if you want to read my latest novel, my one-year-old novel, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's out there now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so go get it. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Coming up on Wednesday, I am going to be in conversation with Anne Elizabeth Moore, author of the essay collection entitled Body Horror, Capitalism, Fear, Misogyny, Jokes. It is available from the Feminist Press. It is the official May pick of the Other People Book Club. So 
That is coming up in just a few days. You don't want to miss it. Stay tuned.